Our focus this evening is on the topic of the fear of the Lord, fearing God, fearing God. Now, our society is certainly well acquainted with fear, even apart from the whole COVID panic that set in six months ago. Our culture understands fear very well, though it may try to ignore that or deny that. Let me give you some statistics on this, at least according to health specialists. Doctors have sought to categorize various kinds of anxiety. Anxiety is so widespread in society that there are whole manuals written on disorders that arise out of what is basically known as worry or anxiety. You have what's called the generalized anxiety disorder, which refers to the experience of people who feel anxious or worried on most days of their lives. You have different social anxieties, anxieties that mark people who fear being in public, and in particular, the fear of being criticized, the fear of being humiliated, the fear of being embarrassed. People fear eating in front of others. They fear smiling in front of others. Those are social anxieties. There's various kinds of phobias. Now, some of these phobias, I think, are okay. Like, I really do not like snakes and black widows. But the phobias go much more beyond that, the fear of being in elevators and the fear of being alone or the fear of being in a crowded room. There are many different categories of phobias. There are various kinds of panic disorders, those moments that happen to certain people when they lose control. The heart races, the sweat, the loss of control, the tears, the anger, the outbursts, panic disorders. There are things like then OCD and PTSD. These are really characteristic of our culture. In fact, according to the Anxiety and Depression Association of America, anxiety disorders are the most common mental illness in the United States, affecting 40 million adults 18 years and older. That's 18% of the population. So about one-fifth of the population is actually diagnosed as having some kind of anxiety disorder. Anxiety disorders, according to this association, also affect 25, one in four 25% of children between the ages of 13 and 18. So during that important transition period where children move into adulthood, one in four suffer from what they would say would be an anxiety disorder. And the research clearly shows that children with these disorders are at a higher risk to perform poorly in school, miss out, on important social experiences in life and engage in substance abuse. Another study out of the, uh, out of the United Kingdom 
studied thousands of individuals in the early 2000s and concluded that even mild but ongoing anxiety or fear in life raised the risk of death, of an early death, by 20%. That's mild anxiety. And then according to the National Institutes of Health, NIH, they write this, anxiety disorders and the associated depression are among the most common mental disorders worldwide. Together they account for over 50% of the global disease burden. So that's not just the United States. They're essentially saying that 50% of the disease burden around the world springs from some kind of fear. Certainly, our culture and mankind in general is plagued by fear. And of course, as we know, there are whole industries given towards trying to help people cope with fear. And you think of the whole alcohol and drug industry and how they are designed to both nurture fear and provide a a solution in their minds to dealing with fear, of course, for their financial benefit. Our culture and mankind in general is well acquainted with fear and the consequences are very evident. And then just look at the last six months. The panic that has gripped this country, the panic that has gripped those who now fear daily, hourly for their longevity, for their health, who fear their work, their their jobs, who fear lost income, who fear the potential of losing everything because of what is going on around Our culture knows fear. So can we respond then and say that fear is our number one enemy? It certainly is in the health perspective. It's our number one enemy. But is fear really our greatest foe? Well, tonight we need to look at that. And we need to see what Scripture teaches about fear. And as we are going to see, it is not fear itself that is our greatest foe. It is the object in that, that we place our fear upon or the motivation for our fear or the ways that we try to deal with that fear, which is our greatest foe. But fear itself is not explicitly the culprit. One Dutch, 17th century Dutch theologian, Wilhelmus Abrakel, wrote this, Ultimately, fear issues forth from Love, either for ourselves or for God. And he's right on this in that fear is not just some kind of a problem that just floats out there. It originates from something and at the heart, fear springs forth from love. A love of something. And that love will either be placed on self And when love is placed on self, it creates one kind of fear. Or when it is placed upon God, it creates a different, fundamentally different kind of fear. For the typical man, fear originates 
out of self-love, the desire for preservation, the desire not to be deprived of anything considered to be good and necessary, and a fear of, of some kind of onslaught of something that would somehow undermine the self-worth. That's the natural man. His fear originates out of self-love, and he attempts, in response to that self-love and the fear that springs from that, he attempts to solve the resulting fear by turning to the things of this world, by turning to the bottle, turning to drugs, turning to illicit affairs, all in an attempt to somehow pacify that fear that has arisen from his self-love. But the wise man, as we will see tonight in the book of Proverbs, his fear originates out of a love for God. The wise man has fear too. But his life looks very, very different than the natural man. The wise man has fear. He has a robust fear, an ever-increasing fear. But his life looks different because... His fear originates out of a love for God. And as he experiences that fear, he is not driven to fight or flight. He is driven instead to embrace. And that fear does not cause him to run away from God, but rather it increases his dependency upon God. That is the fear that we come across in the book of Proverbs. It is the fear that we come across, especially in the wisdom literature and in the Psalms. These are the portions of Scripture, the book of Psalms, the book of Job, the book of Proverbs, and the book of Ecclesiastes that speak much about the fear of God. And these wisdom books and the the Psalter hold up the fear of God as the greatest of virtues. Not something in itself to be feared, but something to be extolled, something to be pursued. And that's what we want to do this evening. In fact, we could say this, the concept of fear is the interpretive key to the entire book of Proverbs. It is the key that unlocks the contents of the entire book so that we can understand it rightly. It is the passcode, the password, without which the book's contents remain unaccessible. This is the concept of fear. In fact, it's interesting to note that the book of Proverbs begins, it's 31 chapters, it begins with this preamble in verses 1 to 7, before the actual Proverbs begins in verse one, uh, verse 8 of chapter 1. And you have this preamble that leads us to the motto of the book, which is found in 1 verse 7. The very, very beginning of this book, Solomon, as he collected his Proverbs, insisted that this statement be found at the very beginning. This is the key, and this is what he says. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. But notice, the motto of the book is all about fear. And then when we get to the end of the book, we also see as the second bookend, the other bookend, we also see at the very end a reference to the fear of the Lord. And this one is of the virtuous woman, Proverbs 31 woman, where we have this statement that serves as this other bookend. 
Charm is beautiful and beauty is vain. But a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. There the, the thought is on the vanity and futility of things that we often seek after and praise in this life. Think of the whole industry, the modeling industry. The clothing industry is all about pursuing this kind of prettiness. But the writer here states this, that the one who fears the Lord, particularly here, the woman who fears the Lord, she is the one who shall be praised. These two statements serve as bookends to this entire book. And the concept of the fear of the Lord is then found at various places throughout the entire contents of the book. So what is the fear of the Lord? If it is the beginning of, of wisdom, if it is the beginning of knowledge, how, how do we define it? Well, let me give you a twofold definition. When we talk about the fear of the Lord, the concept of fearing Yahweh, and I'll explain that name in just a few moments, but when you talk about the fear of the Lord, it is very important to understand it in two nuances. They're interrelated. It's like two sides of the same coin. You really can't pull them apart, but they are related. They must be together. The first nuance of this concept of the fear of the Lord is this. The fear of the Lord is a reference to the revelation of God. The fear of the Lord is a, is a title that refers to the revelation of God. It is not fear directed toward God, but fear given by God, wherein fear defines the substance of his revelation. It is the fear that is given by God, the revelation of God and his character. And so in that sense, this fear is objective. It is from God. It comes from him to man. The fear of the Lord in this sense is something that is taught, taught by God to man and even taught by man to man, by fathers to their children. And we're going to see some of that even in the book of Proverbs, the teaching of the fear of the Lord. It is objective truth. And perhaps a good illustration of this concept is is found in the Psalter in Psalm 19 verse 9. You know that portion of Psalm 19, where you have David extolling the written word of God, and this is what he says. Notice the parallelism here. He says, the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are altogether righteous. The words law, testimony, precepts, commandment, fear, judgments, those are all synonyms referring to the revelation of God, His Word. And so when we come across this phrase, fear of the Lord, we must understand that it is, it is connected to, inseparable from, the revelation that God has given of Himself. I'll have more to say on that, but keep that in mind. Now, the second nuance, the other side of the coin, 
from the revelation of God is the response of man. Now, this is what, we're common, what we commonly think of when we think of the fear of the Lord. When we think of the fear of the Lord, we're thinking of our response to God. And that certainly is true. It is the second nuance, the one with which we're most familiar. This is the subjective response. It is from man, and it emphasizes a particular relationship that we have to God in response to his revelation of himself, how he has revealed himself, and in response, we fear him. He has pulled back the curtain, the veil, and through his word, he has allowed us to see him even just a little bit, and we call the response to that glory fear. We call it awe. We call it reverence. It's what the angels experience, those creatures that we read of in Revelation, who cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. It is our response. And it's synonymous, as we see in the book of Proverbs itself, with such things as trust and faith, such things as awe and humility. That our response to the revelation of God as he has revealed himself in his word through Jesus Christ, our response is one of love. We're drawn towards him by this amazing this amazing draw that we see how majestic God is and we don't run from that. We realize we were created to behold that. We're drawn to him, but as we are, it's not that as we draw closer, we become more familiar and begin to treat him just as uh, we would an old friend. No, he's different. He's majestic, infinitely holy. And the more we know of him, we are We are brought to awe, we're humbled, we tremble before him. This is the kind of thinking that Charles Bridges wonderfully summarized when he said this, the fear of the Lord is, quote, that affectionate reverence by which the child of God bends himself humbly and carefully to his father's law. Let me read that again. The fear of the Lord is that affectionate reverence by which the child of God bends himself humbly and carefully to his father's law. And in this definition, you see both of those nuances at work. You see the law of the father. You see the revelation of the father. You see the disclosure of God and his character. And then you see the child who does not flee from him, but approaches him, but not out of contempt, but he approaches him with this affectionate reverence that says, I know you are holy and I am not, but I love what I see in you. I know you're majestic and I I have no worthiness before you whatsoever, but I need to be with you. That is affectionate reverence. And it manifests itself not in some kind of arrogant contempt, 
some kind of arrogant familiarity, slapping God on the back, calling him, hey, bro, those kinds of things. I don't know if you heard of a recent Bible translation that was released by LifeGate. Gen Z was the, was the uh, name of that. Some of you may have heard about it. You can Google it. I think they pulled it off because of the outcry over how they would describe the relationship to this majestic God. Hey, bro, that's not reverence. So as we think of the fear of the Lord and the revelation of God's majesty to us and our rightful response to him, how are we to understand it specifically in the book of Proverbs? Well, what I've done over the past while is survey the book of Proverbs and summarize the teachings on the fear of the Lord into these five categories, these five truths that tell us more about the fear of the Lord and its operation in our lives. Let's go through these five truths. Number one, the fear of the Lord is the starting point for all true knowledge. The fear of the, the, the Lord is the starting point for all true knowledge. Again, let's go back to the motto of the book. Chapter 1, verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. As I said before, this is the interpretive key to the entire book. And it's important to consider this statement with a little bit more attention than we'll give to the other statements on the fear of the Lord because this is the interpretive key. And through this statement, I want you to notice three things. Three observations from Solomon's motto that he gives about the fear of the Lord. Number one, he indicates this, that all knowledge is theological. All knowledge is theological. There is nothing that is true knowledge that somehow exists apart from God. There's nothing that exists out there that we can call secular knowledge that has no connection to who God is and how he has revealed himself to be. Now, a great problem among many today is is that we compartmentalize between the secular and the sacred. And we have this kind of, this, this bipolar kind of idea where when we're in church, we think one way. And when we're in the world, we think a totally different way. And there are many Christian men out there whose lives just don't match up with what they are here and what they are in the world. Because they have this idea that there are two kinds of knowledge, secular and sacred. And if they're in the sacred world, then they have sacred knowledge. If they're in the secular world, then they can act in light of secular knowledge. Well, Solomon makes it clear, all knowledge is God's knowledge. All knowledge is God's knowledge. He owns it all. If it's true, it's because it emanates from him whether that is a truth about this world and how it operates, or whether it's a truth about heaven or the gospel or about morality. There is no knowledge that exists outside of God. All knowledge is God's knowledge. Secondly, there is an exclusivity to this knowledge. Now notice this. It's important when Solomon says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Now you might wonder what I'm getting at. It's important that he doesn't just say the fear of God. Elsewhere, you do find that title, God, that's used. And you do even find the phrase, the fear of God. 
And that's, there's nothing wrong with that. But when Solomon uses this word, which we say Lord, it's capitalized in our English translations, it is a reference to the personal name of God, Yahweh. The most personal name that God has ever revealed about himself to mankind. Yahweh. The fear, not just of divine or divinity, not just the fear of a superior power, but notice, this is fear of Yahweh. The God who revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush and said, I am who I am. I am Yahweh. The God who revealed himself to the prophets with the name Yahweh. And even Jesus Christ, who when he spoke would use the phraseology, I am, a reference to that holy name. So when we come across this phrase, the fear of the Lord, this is not just a reverence for whatever is deified. This is a reverence for a specific name. And that name, Yahweh, designates this or differentiates it from any other ideology, any other religion, any other false god that is out there. The fear of the Lord, the fear of Yahweh, is a very exclusive fear. And it immediately cancels out all other claims to knowledge that do not claim Yahweh as their one true God. Thirdly, it is an essential it is an essential knowledge, an essential fear. It, 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 it is an essential right relationship that is indispensable. Solomon says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Now, what does he mean when he says beginning? Bruce Waltke, a commentator, writes this in defining what this first step is. We have to understand it carefully. What does it mean beginning? Does that mean that we can... Start with it, but then move on to other things? Not at all. Waltke states this. However, the temporarily first step, the beginning, in this case is not on a horizontal axis that can be left behind as if on a pathway forward, but on a vertical axis on which all else rests. What the alphabet is to reading, notes to reading music, and numerals to mathematics. The fear of the Lord is to attaining the revealed knowledge of this book. So when Solomon says it is the beginning of knowledge, and he's going to say again in 9 verse 10, it's the beginning of wisdom. It doesn't mean it's the first step on a path and you leave that in the rearview mirror as you continue on in your progress. Rather think of it as a ladder. And that first step is the foundation. It's a vertical axis. And if that axis is not properly stabilized, nothing else matters. It all falls apart. Matthew Henry put it this way, In order to the attaining of all useful knowledge, this is most necessary, that we fear God. We are not qualified to profit by the instructions that are given us unless our minds be possessed with a holy reverence of God and every thought within us be brought into obedience to Him. As all our knowledge must take rise from the fear of God, so it must tend 
to it as its perfection and center. Those know enough who know how to fear God, who are careful in everything to please Him and fearful of offending Him in anything. This is the Alpha and Omega of knowledge. This concept is is referenced by Solomon elsewhere in the book of Proverbs. You could look at chapter 2, verses 1 to 5, where he says, My son, if you will receive my words and treasure my commandments within you, make your ear attentive to wisdom and incline your heart to understanding, if you do those things, then you will discern the fear of the Lord. That's where it begins. A right relationship to the God who has revealed himself in his word. 9 verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. 15 verse 33, the fear of the Lord is the instruction for wisdom. Apart from a right relationship to the God of Scripture, you will never be wise. I can say that with all the authority and categorical nature that I can, and I, uh, that's a hill I'll die on. Without the right relationship to Yahweh, there is no true knowledge. There is no true wisdom. Now let's think of an implication from this. An implication. Wisdom to walk successfully in this life will only come from a reverent and teachable submission to the highest authority. This one true God as he has revealed himself in scripture. Men. Are you submissive? You know, there's a lot of men who, who want to walk successfully, who want to know how to order their lives rightly to avoid uh, the ditch on the right and the ditch on the left, who want to know how to walk the path so they can get from point A to point B with a relative sense of calm and ease. But let me tell you, that's not the most important thing. What is critical here? is to recognize that you can only achieve this if you begin and continue with this reverent and teachable submission to the highest authority. Let me ask you, do you read your Bibles? Do you read your Bibles? How often is it that we'll get into this situation where we're crying out for wisdom? God, give me wisdom. I don't know what to do. And then someone will come around and say, well, what are you reading in your Bible? And the answer is, well, I haven't opened it for a while. Well, you're not submissive. And wisdom will not be given. When you reject that, when you reject this humble submissiveness... Solomon Solomon describes what will happen. He says this a little later in chapter 1, verse 28 to 29. He says this, They will call on me, and this is wisdom personified, that they will call on me, but I, wisdom, will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but they will not find me. Why? Because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. And the important implication that we draw is this. The first and foremost question is, what is our relationship to God specifically through his word? If we want wisdom, don't just look at the end product. You need to focus on the cause that will bring about the effect. 
The cause that will bring about the wisdom. And that cause is a right relationship to God that is reflected in a hunger for God's word. A recognition that apart from understanding this word, I cannot live successfully in this treacherous world. Number two. The fear of the Lord is the opposite of pride and self-sufficiency. The fear of the Lord is the opposite of pride and self-sufficiency. Not only is it the starting point for all true understanding, but it is the exact opposite, the antithesis of pride and self-sufficiency. Notice chapter 3, verses 5 to 7. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. We, we see this parallelism that, that occurs here, both a parallelism that is uh, synonymous in, in, in these virtues of trusting in the Lord and acknowledging him and fearing the Lord. And then we see this antithetical parallelism, the, the antithesis of these things, which is described in these terms of leaning on your own understanding and being wise in your own eyes. The fear of the Lord is the opposite of pride. The fear of the Lord is the opposite of self-reliance. And instead, it, it, it manifests itself in trust, independency. It manifests itself in acknowledgement, in confession of need. It manifests itself in fear, in this right relationship. And all of that is against, notice what he says in these verses, it's against one's own, one's own understanding, one's own eyes. And here's the implication from this second truth. The fear of the Lord requires us to treat our natural intuition, feelings, logic, and opinions as one of the greatest threats to wisdom that we will ever encounter. And that is certainly antithetical to what the world tells you, right? Trust your heart. Trust your heart. Trust your gut. Don't go by your head. Go by your heart, your feelings, your instinct, your bowels. But... Solomon teaches us that the fear of the Lord will not allow us to do that. The fear of the Lord will not make us into men who develop their doctrine out of their intuition, who develop their view of God according to how they feel, who will define righteousness and justice and equity and morality according to what seems best for them in light of their experience. No, the man who fears the Lord will treat his own intuition, his own feelings with great suspicion. Proverbs 12 verse 15 says, The way of a fool is right in his own eyes. There you have that phrase again, in his own eyes. But a wise man is he who listens to counsel. A wise man is he who looks outside of himself. And Proverbs 26 verse 12 says this, Do you see a man wise in his own eyes? Do you see a man who builds his own doctrine on homespun intuition? Do you see a man who, who leads from his own feeling of what's right? Who makes an announcements and judgments, assertions based on what feels good to him at the time and thinks he's his own authority? Well, notice Proverbs 20 verse 
26 verse 12. You see a man in his own, wise in his own eyes, there's more hope for a fool than to such a person. You could look at Judges. The depth of depravity in Judges 17 verse 6 and 21 verse 25 is expressed by this phrase, in those days there was no king and every man did what was right in his own eyes. Psalm 36 verses 1 to 2. Transgression speaks to the ungodly within his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes, for it flatters him in his own eyes concerning the discovery of his iniquity and the hatred of it. C.S. Lewis said this, In God, you come up against something which is in every respect immeasurably superior to yourself. Unless you know God as that, and therefore know yourself as nothing in comparison, you do not know God at all. As long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. Or in the words of C.H. Spurgeon, the worst sort of clever men are those who know better than the Bible. Number three, the third truth is this. The fear of the Lord generates a reflection of God's character. You always know who manifests the fear of the Lord by how they reflect the things of God. They, they're like mirrors that are growing increasingly clear. The fuzziness is going away. And they're reflecting more and more accurately the character of God, particularly the things that God hates, the man who fears God hates. And the things that God loves, the man who fears God loves. Proverbs 3 verse 7 says this, Do not be wise in your own eyes, fear the Lord, and turn away from evil. They go hand in hand. Proverbs 8 verse 13, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Pride and arrogance and the evil way and the perverted mouth I hate. Proverbs 16 verse 6, by loving kindness and truth, iniquity is atoned for. And by the fear of the Lord, one keeps away from evil. Proverbs 23 verse 17, do not let your hearts envy sinners, but live in the fear of the Lord always. In Proverbs 14, verse 2, notice the love here. He who walks in uprightness, who walks rightly, righteously, that person fears the Lord. Or you could put it in the words of Psalm 112, verse 1, how blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. Now, what's an implication from this? The fear of the Lord is the essential ingredient in the fight against sin. And here's something that's very, very important. The most important aspect of the mortification of sin, the killing of sin in your life, you don't begin by loving sin less. You begin by fearing God more. And if you are struggling with sin in your life, these sin habits, then you can practice various kinds of radical steps to remove yourself from temptation. That's good. That can be very helpful for the short term. But ultimately, it comes down to this. You must first and foremost work on your fear of the Lord. That right relationship to who God is as he has revealed it in his word. Again, this 
Dutch theologian Wilhelmus Abrakel said this, the fear of God is the fountain of all the holiness which delights you. Sinful lusts will lose their potency. Corruptions which surface will readily be subdued. You will be stopped in the middle of sinning and you will find yourself included toward the practice of all manners of virtues. Then if you're here tonight and you know your, your conscience is pricking you, I thank God that it is pricking you. It's a good sign. It means you're alive. Your conscience is pricking you. And you've tried all kinds of things. But let me tell you this. The thing that is most necessary is the fear of the Lord. An understanding of who He is according to His revelation. And a right response to that. And if you continue to struggle in sin, it comes down to that issue. You do not fear the God who has revealed himself in his word. Number four, the fear of the Lord produces a harvest of rewards. The fear of the Lord produces a harvest of rewards. Proverbs 13, verse 13, the one who despises the word, one who despises the revelation of God, will be in debt to it, will be judged by it. But the one who fears the commandment, who fears the objective revelation of God, he will be rewarded. What Solomon is doing in these Proverbs, and we'll read a few more of these in just a moment, is wanting us to remember the law of cause and effect. That the one who fears the Lord can anticipate rewards from God. And it's not that we are motivated exclusively by those rewards, but we see that the fear of the Lord is so good and pure that nothing but goodness can follow it. And Solomon says, look at the effect. Understand the effect. Yes, this is humbling. Yes, this is painful. It is difficult to, to immerse ourselves into something that convicts us so deeply of our unworthiness. But as we do that, the, the fruit, the reward that comes from that is, is overwhelming. Proverbs 14, verse 26 to 27, he says this, In the fear of the Lord, there is strong confidence. And his children, that is the children of the one who fear the Lord, will have a refuge. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one would avoid the snares of death. Proverbs 10, verse 27, the fear of the Lord prolongs life. But the years of the wicked will be shortened. 14 verse 27. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may avoid the snares of death. The fear of the Lord leads to life. 19 verse 23. So that one may sleep satisfied, untouched by evil. Proverbs 22 verse 4. The reward of humility and the fear of the Lord are riches, honor, and life. Now the implication that we draw from that is this. Solomon wants us to recognize practical consequences that come in response to fearing the Lord. And this fear will lead to wisdom. That's the effect. The cause is fear. The effect is wisdom. And this wisdom which will come to us will be the instrument that will protect us from the onslaught of evil and will keep us in the right way. No, Solomon is not promising fame as our world understands it or riches as our world understands it. But he is saying that the fear of the Lord will keep you from endless credit 
card bills. It will keep you from sexual diseases. It will keep you from panic attacks. It will keep you from broken marriages. It will keep you from drunkenness and drug abuse. This is what the fear of the Lord produces. It produces a lifestyle not marked by the vices of this world. And after all, that is what we long for. Stability, peace, contentment, and love. Solomon says, it comes from the fear of the Lord. Number five, our final truth as we wrap things up is this. The fear of the Lord cancels out all other fears. The fear of the Lord cancels out all other fears. He says in chapter 3, verse 25 to 26, that we are not to be afraid of fear, nor the onslaught of the wicked when it comes, for the Lord will be your confidence and will keep your foot from being caught. Don't fear those things. But he says this instead, in the fear of the Lord, there is a strong confidence. Chapter 14, verse 26, as we've read already. In the fear of the Lord, there's confidence. Not instability, not anxiety. Chapter 29, verse 25, the fear of man brings a snare. But he who trusts in the Lord, he who fears the Lord, will be exalted. Here's the implication that comes from that. If you struggle with anxiety over your health, if you struggle with anxiety over your circumstances, your career, your family, the opinions of others, if you're afraid to be in public, if you're afraid to tell others you're a Christian, if you're afraid to go to a worship service, the solution will not be found in in this world and what this world prescribes. The solution will be found in a greater fear, a robust fear in God himself. So if you're here tonight and you're one of those who's staying up at night out of fear, out of anxiety, can't sleep, the recourse, the solution is not less fear, but more. More. You need more fear, but it needs to be a fear in the God who has revealed himself as Yahweh through the burning bush, through the exile or the the redemption of, of Israel from Egypt who has revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ, who's revealed himself in the coming King. Psalm 118 verse 6 says, The Lord is for me, I will not fear. What can man do to me? Like how Spurgeon puts it, he said this, The fear of God is the death of every other fear. Like a mighty lion, it chases all other fears before it. J.C. Ryle, in giving instructions specifically to young men, who especially in our day are fearing much these days, let me address you with these words of J.C. Ryle, young men. He said this, Young men, be of good courage. Care not for what the world says or thinks. You will not be with the world always. Can man save your soul? No. Will man be your judge in the great and dreadful day of account? No. 
Can man give you a good conscience in life, a good hope in death, a good answer in the morning of resurrection? No, no, no. Man can do nothing of the sort. Then fear not the reproach of men, neither be afraid of their revilings. For the moth shall eat them up like a garment, and the worm shall eat them like wool. Call your mind to the saying of good Colonel Gardner, I fear God, and therefore I have none else to fear. Go and be like him. Man, we need men who fear today. But not in the way the world fears, but who are possessed by a fear of the Lord. And what an impact a generation of men who fear the Lord would have in this dark day. Men who would not be afraid of the testimony of our Lord and the gathering of his saints. Men who would not be afraid to to stand up when you're told to kneel. Men who would not be afraid to bear the name of Jesus Christ And in the most winsome way possible, yet in the most courageous way, proclaim the truth as Christ has delivered it. That's what we need. It is said of the Puritans that they feared God with all their souls. And they exhausted this capacity for fear in the fear of God. And therefore, the face of men they did not fear What was man, even though he be a king, compared to the king of kings? Well, as we close, I want to ask you the question. Is fear your friend or your foe? And it all comes down to this. Who do you fear? Whom do you fear? And let me read the words of Jesus. Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Whom do you fear? When you go to bed tonight, when you wake up tomorrow morning, who is it that you fear? What comes first in your mind and last in your mind? Whom do you fear? Well, thankfully, we have one to fear who is also at the same time a refuge for our souls. Amen?